Our text this morning is Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, to the Church of Smyrna, found on page 1,311. And before we read God's word, let me lead us in a prayer of illumination. God, I am reminded that not all the teachings you give are easy. There is challenge, there is rebuke, and there is correction. And Lord, I am reminded of Peter's words, though. When others left you. He confessed, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, this morning as we come to your word, I pray that we might see your word, your words of eternal life to us this morning. We pray these things through Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Revelation 2. 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. Thanks be to God. As we begin in the second church of our seven-part series, I want to remind you that through each of these churches, we'll kind of have a framework of six sections, an explanation of the context, followed by an analysis of Christ's title, then Christ's commendation to that church, Christ's rebuke to that church, Christ's correction to that church, and then the consequence or promise, positive and negative, to each church. And so this morning, as we begin our sermon on Smyrna, I have a story I want to share, less than a historical analysis of the city of Smyrna. I actually want to start with this prayer, which is pertinent to the city of Smyrna. This is a translation early of the early church um, in Smyrna. As he waited for the fire to be lighted, he prayed, Lord God Almighty, Father of your blessed and beloved child, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you 
God of angels and hosts and all creation, and of the whole race of the upright who live in your presence. I bless you that you have thought me worthy of this day and hour to be numbered among the martyrs and share in the cup of Christ for the resurrection to eternal life, for the soul and body and the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. Among them may I be accepted before you today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice. I bless you, I glorify you, through the eternal heavenly high priest Jesus Christ, your beloved child, through whom be glory to you, with him and the Holy Spirit, now and for all ages. Amen. After this prayer, a fire was lit, and shortly after that, a soldier stabbed Polycarp. Now, who is Polycarp? Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He was a disciple of the disciple John, and he was the bishop in Smyrna in the year 15 or 155 or 56. That's actually when he was martyred. This is roughly 60 years after Revelation would have been written. And along with this um, recounting of Polycarp's martyrdom, we get several things in the city of Smyrna. We get the, the story of, of a man who foolishly led others during the start of the persecution in Smyrna. And then when he was before lions, recounted Christ or denounced him. And yet for Polycarp, who was 86 at the time of his martyrdom, he was urged to deny Christ. The uh, council or the city official didn't actually want to kill this old, fragile man. And so he urged him, renounce Christ or say, Caesar is Lord and I will release you. And Polycarp's answer to that man was, 86 years I have served him, and not once has he ever wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? It's a sobering way to start our sermon. The idea of one being tied to a stake and set on fire, and then when the flames didn't strike him well enough, a soldier was ordered to spear him. It's a sobering way. But our text is a sobering text, touching on both not only the cost of following Christ, but the cost of not following him, too. It touches on life and death, and it touches on suffering in between. And not in a way like Hallmark movies, where after an hour of trial and struggle, it's all wrapped up in a happy ever ending. Our text says, be faithful unto death. 
It pushes us to ask what we live for and die for and what, for Christ, we are willing to live through. It also touches on suffering, which is never an easy subject, partially because suffering is something we can't fully understand. In fact, we don't always understand. There's a frustration in this text as you read it and compare it to the other churches. Why is this church called to such tribulation and affliction and suffering? Why does Jesus allow this to happen to the church of Smyrna? Before we jump in specifically to the text, I want to give at least the warning that I'm not going to be able to answer that. I cannot answer why to some things Christ calls believers, to some sufferings he calls greater ones. C.S. Lewis, in his Grief Observed, Grief Observed, points out that in many ways the sufferings which we face and the tribulations which Christ calls us to individually, are often things we cannot understand why. And the text doesn't necessarily point out why specifically Smyrna was called to this, to this trial, to these testings by Satan. But it does point to a solution, the solution that Christ is in control and ultimately Christ is victorious. So not explaining the hows and whats and whys of specific trials and tribulations, but explaining the greater thing, let's jump into the text. And the very first verse, verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The words first and last. These are meant to invoke some idea of the extremes and of the whole and of all creation and history. And to be honest, it's meant to remind us and those of Smyrna of the lens by which they must see. It's what Smyrna needs as they are suffering and as their suffering will continue and even escalate. The first and the last is the lens. It's funny how sorrows and struggle, it's not actually funny, it's tragic how sorrows and pain and trials have a way of making our perspectives small. I'm not attacking or belittling what anyone has gone through in this life or will go through. But I am pointing out that isn't it when we suffer even a little bit, how easily we can fall into a woe is me mentality, which is focused all about me. One of the things I often do is I use the illustration of high school relationships. Because I've never met a high schooler who, when a breakup happens, hasn't had their world 
collapse or crash. And I personally have similar things. In, in high school, my team almost won a soccer championship. We uh, got to a PK shootout, and one guy missed the shot. And that one guy was me. It's also why I'm not the biggest sports guy anymore. And uh, hilariously enough, as a 30-year-old now, looking back on that, I kid you not, the nights I would wake up, the amount of hours I have spent reliving that moment, that struggle, that trial. But now as a 30-year-old, it's faded. It's faded so much. And it's almost mind-blowing how massive that was to me, and yet how small it is now. I have friends from high school who I still talk to, but not many. In fact, I don't think I, I don't know if I'll ever even go back to the town I was in high school in. I don't have any intentions to. What I'm trying to do is point that perspectives change, and usually it's through life that we get a greater perspective, that we see the things which are small and the things which are great. And so Christ coming to the church of Smyrna saying first and last, saying is saying that in all creation, all the events you will face, I am the lens which you must see them through. He goes on even further, I think, doubling down on this idea. Actually, I want us to see the, uh, how this can point out. All the events which we will face must be seen through the lens of Christ. And we get this beautiful picture of the lens of Christ, I think, at the very cross of Christ, where Christ was crucified. Luke 23 has this story. It says, One of the criminals who was hanged railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. One of the things about the lens of Christ is it dispels our false lens of innocence. The things that we did nothing wrong. Our false lens of innocence in this life. And it also gives us insight into the next. Even on a cross, even before an executioner. With the lens of Christ, we can see past all the events which we face and go through. And then the title doubles down on this idea, saying, first and last, and death and life, who died and came to life again. In this second part, not only do we see all the events, but we see the power of Christ. 
but also, I think, something of an echo of what we feel during these things. The death of Christ was the greatest moment of despair for the disciples and for us, that an innocent man should die for us. And yet the life of Christ is the lens of the greatest joy and exuberance and celebration which belongs to both the disciples and to us and to the church of Smyrna. So they are reminded of what they need and how they need to see the world and the trial which they walk through, through the lens of Christ. And then verse 9 begins to make sense. Jesus says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is the beginning of Jesus' commendation for the church of Smyrna. Smyrna is different than most of the other churches because Smyrna actually has no rebuke. Of the seven churches, only Smyrna and Philadelphia are doing well, and yet they suffer. So where is Jesus' commendation? Well, it's present in two ways. One, it's present in the lack of a complaint. He finds no fault in the church. But it's also present in his proper and clear and true assessment of the church. I don't know if you can see it or you do see it, but take a look. He calls them rich, which they are, spiritually rich, even though they are physically poor. He sees their afflictions and knows them and assesses them. But it's also present, the commendation is present in the rebuke and the, the the condemnation which he places on those who oppress them, in the contrast and in the judgment. There is encouragement in the identification and the assessment of those who assail the Smyrnans, the slander which they see, they receive. Jesus sees the slander as slander. He's not fooled by it. He is not neglectful of it, he sees it and gives them a title, the synagogue of Satan, those who are wrong. The church is not in the wrong, but God sees the wickedness of the world. The church of Smyrna is rich in, in, rich in good conscience before God and is seen by God, but also those who are wicked are seen and recognized, not fooled by false teachings, false sayings, false virtue signaling, or posturing. Jesus is fully aware. When I worked for Schneider Electric, there was a project that I had, and I was given a three-month timeline and I was pretty much set up for failure. 
and I worked very hard, and I remember there was a meeting, and one of the, the development guys was absolutely furious. After the end of three months, I think I was a week overdue, and uh, in this, meet, this boardroom meeting, across the, across the office, just hear them shouting, and the developer said, what has he been doing for three months? And then my boss, who was a very mild, very patient, very quiet overall man, for the one time in my four and a half year career, just exploded. What was remarkable about it was I had been working hard. I had been working for four weekends. I had been working way past five o'clock. And it was encouraging to know that the one over me saw all of this. So then this passage where Christ sees both the good works, the constant affliction and sorrow of the church in Smyrna, when he sees it, it should inspire us because it is not meaningless to be noticed, to be seen. Now, though the church doesn't have any corrective, next part, this passage does have a corrective or a command for this church. Though they're not doing anything wrong, no sins are present, they are called to do something. And we as Christians are not called just to stop sinning, but we're called to more, which is what we see in this passage. Verse 10 tells the Smyrnans, do not fear and be faithful. These are commands. These are actions. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. And be faithful unto death. Why these commands? One which limits saying, do not do, do not fear, do not give in to fear. And the other, one of pursuit, that of being, be faithful. Jesus taught in Matthew, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. As we look at this passage, there is encouragement. One, the ten days are almost certainly symbolic. They say that they set the context that Jesus is in control. He has capped just how much the suffering will be, or the, the trial. Ten days. There is a limit which he controls and yet the symbolism isn't literally 10 days. It's, it could possibly be unto death. There isn't a length or of suffering or a trial which you or I or anyone in the church will go through which is beyond the limits which Christ 
sets. And so we do not have to fear. Because even if called unto death, we are not called to the second death. God sent one man in his entire ministry to die for sins. And that was Christ. One man was called to descend into hell, as the Apostle Creed points out. And that was Christ. So though we might face death, we do not face that death. The last command, that of be faithful unto death, is truly for Christians and is only something Christians can understand by faith, by belief and knowledge of Christ and of the God of life. In Polycarp's martyrdom, he was tempted and, and encouraged and urged. And yet, in his response, in the trial, before the sentence, his words, 86 years I have served him, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Our faithfulness pales in the comparison of Christ. And yet the witness and testimony of Polycarp's 86 years of walking with Christ reflect how we can grow in faithfulness to the one who, in, in, in a way which is similar to the one who is true, truly faithful. No doubt in those 86 years of Polycarp's life, he had strayed but he had learned, learned and grown and grown in sanctification by clinging to Christ. So that when the day of testing came and the trial, he was faithful, faithful unto death, even a gruesome death. Finally, verse 11. We're told, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is the second death? I've alluded to it a little bit, but the second death is spoken of later in the book of Revelation. It's actually clarified. In verse 20, or in chapter 20 of Revelation, we get this vision. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from the presence of the earth. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The second death is hell. 
the Christian worldview. That we are born both of flesh and spirit. Martin Luther, in his section in his Bible on this passage, was found to have written, Born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. We are assured, however, because of Christ, that the second death will never touch us. If we die, when we die, and we all will die, whether by persecution or slow decay and aging, our debt, as the Heidelberg Catechism stated this morning, our death does not pay our debt for our sins, but rather ends our sins and ushers us into eternal life. So how do we apply this passage, this passage written to a church both suffering and called to face greater suffering and trial? How do we as New Hope CRC, as brothers and sisters in Christ in the midst of a 21st century, apply this? Well, the first is by asking and applying a lens of Christ from first to last, from death to life, to understand and evaluate all we face. The trials, whether they be traffic jams, or slanders, or physical attack, seeing it through the cross of Christ, seeing ourselves, our highs and our lows, through him who has overcome all the trials of this world. And then, by remembering that even in the midst of our suffering, God is in control. That the tribulation of this life will only last this life. That in the resurrection and eternal life, sin will be ended. Sin will be done. Death and Hades will be thrown into a lake of fire. And finally, asking ourselves, what do we fear and how do we not fear it? If we have the lens of Christ, seeing the, the God who is greater than any attack which can come upon us. With Christ as our King and our lens, and his faithfulness and his goodness to us, we are conquerors. We are called and able to stand unafraid and unwavering. Though our lives and our livelihoods may be attacked and will be attacked, God has overcome, God is in control, and through God we have eternal victory. Will you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, who is like you in power, strength, and unwavering goodness and faithfulness? Lord, it is by your Son and 
your salvation, that we have been rescued from sin, from hell, from death, and from the devil's grasp. Lord, in your death and resurrection, we rejoice. Now we wait, Lord, in the midst of a fallen world, in the midst of persecution, of trials and suffering. We wait for your return, the fullness of your redemption. God, we wait. Give us eyes to see your salvation secured and assured to us, even in the valleys. Give us confidence and faithfulness, even unto death. Lord, remind us and let us see the riches we have in you and the eternal crown of life we will soon one day receive. We pray these things in Jesus' power and name. Amen.